Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I'd made that mistake when I was a youth pastor and when I was coming up as a pastor and I was trying to teach people what it looks like to spell in the kingdom of God what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus. I made the same mistake I made with my six-year-old boy when I'm trying to, to get him to, to read, is that you expect them to just have a maturity that they don't have yet. And you expect their actions to meet a standard that they have not themselves grown to yet. Trying to extract extract a level of spirituality from a people that have not yet gotten there. And so in essence, I was trying to get people to behave before they had become. I was trying to get people to act in a Christian way before they had Christ fully formed in their hearts. And I realized that for so many years of my preaching, I was pointing to people saying, can you just spell it out? Can you just be what you're supposed to be? Can you just catch up and wake up and do it? And everybody's got trembling fingers going, I, I hope with this dad, this pressure of this dad looking over at me that I'll be able to get there. I'll be able to accomplish what I'm supposed to do. You see, before we can behave, we have to believe. And we have to become. And people need to know not just who Jesus was, but who they are in Jesus. They need to understand that. So for me personally, the book of Colossians, which we'll go through in the next few weeks, was life-changing because it started to reveal to me the power of who I am in Christ and what the gospel truly accomplished in my life. When we started Anchor Church eight years ago, we really wanted to fulfill a mandate. And this is a mandate which we believe is a God-given mandate to the church and to every believer. This mandate picks up from the great commission of Jesus. If you're new to church, the great commission of Jesus was a time when Jesus told the disciples what their mission was, what they were supposed to do. And it was to go out and preach the gospel, to baptize those who believe, and to make disciples. And for many years before that, I thought that what that looked like in a practical sense, making disciples, was to get people who claim to be Christians to stop messing around and to act in Christian ways. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I was missing an important piece, which Colossians helped me to see. Ultimately, it resulted in me pointing at them rather than pointing them to Christ. Preaching the, the Christian as opposed to the Christ. Preaching it as some sort of a system or a moral code that you can go and live apart from the power of the resurrected Jesus in your life. And just to be clear, I did this to myself as well. I did everything in my power to meet the standards of Scripture and to do it faithfully. And I often failed and I hated it when I failed. So much so that I eventually burnt myself out. I would say spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way. I burnt myself out trying to please God, and I felt like nothing 
I would do would ever be good enough for him. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Nothing I can do will ever be enough for God. I'll never quite be the person I'm supposed to be. This is where Martin Luther comes in because when I heard his story and read about his life, I identified with it so strongly. It's amazing how it's still the same journey for so many of us as we, as we wrestle with our duty before God. Martin Luther, as I mentioned, was a German theologian and a reformer who once described a, a similar feeling when he was reading Romans 1 verse 17. This is what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there's power in that. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. God's righteousness is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther said this about this scripture. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes, who punished, punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon St. Paul at that place, Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you hear words like the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. And those statements almost make us take a step back as we look at our own lives and we realize how we've fallen short. And for Martin Luther, he felt he was so aware of how far he had fallen short that it actually it made him hate the term, the righteousness of God. It made him hate God because he knew he was unrighteous. And, and so he was angry with Paul for saying, how could you write those things? The righteousness of God, what does this mean? I felt the same way in my life. How can I call myself righteous? And then God did a miracle in my life. When I was in my most broken, most burnt out state, I was asked to teach the Bible to Bible college students at a large Bible college. And through reading the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit began to whisper the missing piece of the puzzle to, my, to me. And what I had missed all along was the free gift of God's grace that makes us righteous apart from the law apart from any religion, apart from, from anything that we can do. It is the perfect finished work of the cross. It's all about Jesus. And I just started reading my Bible over and over again. And, and there are certain chapters and certain parts of the Bible that I have read and quoted so many times now that they are like ingrained in my mind. They're just a part of, I could, I could repeat them in my sleep. There's certain verses that are just like, they're the stuff of my life. And there's certain chapters in the Bible, in Romans especially, and Colossians 2 is one of them, and Hebrews 4, and a few other, other chapters that just incredibly 
helped me to see Jesus. And it changed everything about the way I related to God. And I preached it so passionately, passionately that I got into trouble for how boldly I was preaching the gospel. That's how you know you're really preaching the gospel. I remember one church I was invited to go and speak at down in Umschlanga. And I traveled down there. And I just preached the message from Colossians 2, which we'll look at next week. And the message was called, Do You Believe the Gospel? And the first part was, there's only three simple points. Number one, you can't. You can't do it. You can't please God. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't pray hard enough. You can't go to enough places. You can't, you, you can't make up for any of your sin. You, can't, you just can't. Just settle it in your heart right now. You're not good enough. Point two, Jesus did. What you can't do for yourself, Jesus came and he did. He completed the work. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He did everything necessary. And then point three got them really mad. I was already seeing folded arms and kind of frowns and people looking over each, at each other. And then, I, and then I dropped the real bomb. And the real bomb out of Colossians 2 was that Jesus does. You can't, Jesus did, Jesus does. It doesn't go back to being you. It doesn't go back to, okay, well, Jesus saved me, but now it's my job to keep myself saved. Oh, Jesus, Jesus did this for me and he made me righteous. Now it's my job to keep myself righteous. No, you live in the power of that righteousness. And yes, we have responsibility. Yes, we have to walk some things out. Yes, we have to make choices empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. But it's still only because of Jesus. Because if you took him out of the equation, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one that seeks God, no one that understands. I finished that message. In fact, I preached about an hour and a half, which I don't do unless I feel like I'm not winning. So I'm like, you guys look like you're not sure about what I'm saying. Let me give you another verse. And, like, you know, and, and then it's like, no, they're still not happy. Let me give you another verse. Let me just show you what I'm saying. Hour and a half later, and they, it honestly looked like they wanted to stone me. I actually had a nightmare about that sermon. And it had repercussions. I got into trouble and there was lots of things after that. But I had a nightmare about it. And in this nightmare, I was arriving at this church to preach. And they walked me in. And when I walked in, it was like an old traditional church. But it's this pumping young church in Mshlanga. And I walk in and it's, it's got wood on the walls. You know those old churches with the wooden panels everywhere and the old wooden pulpit? And I walk in and I'm like, this is quite religious. I didn't think it would be this religious. And they said, no, the auditorium is through these doors. And we went through a side door. And as we came through those side doors, I'm walking into that auditorium that I preached in. And there's all these young people and there's lights and people are jumping up and down during worship. And I was like, that's amazing that there's this religious side. And then there's this side on this side. And I go in and I go up to preach. And as I'm preaching, a massive concrete pillar appears in the middle of, of the stage. Massive concrete pillar. And I go around this side of the pillar and I lose everybody on the other side. They start talking. They're not listening. And I go around this side again to try and get these people back. And as I go around, I lose the people on the other side. And before long, I come around this side and where the door was in the left-hand corner, all the leaders from that church, people I knew, faces and names, they're standing at that church. That service has started and they're worshiping in the religious service. And I come around one more time and everybody's gone. I'm alone in the room. 
And I, it was quite a long, detailed dream, but I, I get off stage and I walk to where the office was and I knock on the door and I say, I just need somebody to show me to my car. And nobody wants to take me to my car. Nobody wants to escort me. And eventually the pastor's wife comes down and she walks me in. It's like my car's parked down the road and she's walking in. And and I'm wanting to explain to her that all I want is for people to understand who Jesus is. But the more I'm trying to talk to her, the more she's running ahead of me. Eventually we get to the car and she turns around and I say that. I say, I just want people to understand who they are in Jesus. And she bursts into tears and that's the end of the dream. It sat with me for the longest time. I realized that in that moment, I was fighting a religious spirit. When you preach Jesus, people want to worship religion. Because within religion, they're in control. They can preserve their own dignity. They don't have to sacrifice and surrender everything to Christ. And so preaching the book of Colossians has cost me something in my life. But more than it cost me, it has given me everything. And so these passages and verses are ingrained in me. I can repeat them in my sleep. And one of those verses contains Paul's take on the Great Commission's command to make disciples. What does it look like? Colossians 1 verse 28. It says, He is the one we proclaim. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. One of my job descriptions as a lead pastor is to not give you self-help, is to not tickle your ears with all kinds of inspirational quotes and things that are going to make you feel nice so that you can leave here and have a good hour after church before you forget everything that was said. One of my jobs as a pastor and as a lead pastor of a church is to see Christ formed in you. That you would become mature in Christ. That's my job. That we may present everyone. God will say, Adrian, I gave you a flock of people to shape and disciple. What do they look like today? And sadly, so many Once they realize that this journey doesn't just involve finding a comfortable place for them to sit on a Sunday. And it involves life change and challenge and and, and, and a journey and commitment and faithfulness. And when we're discipling them towards that, they say, no, thank you. We've had people say this to us regularly. I want a church that requires less of me. But then how can we present you mature? How can we present you to Christ and say, this is a person, I, I, I have a, a vision that when people meet people from our church and they see the love of God reflected and the, and the maturity of, and, and spiritual maturity really looks like growing in love. And they go, you must be from Anchor Church. You people from there, you know the word. You know Christ. You have a revelation of the gospel. There's something powerful about those people that have, that have been at Anchor. There are churches with way better facilities than we have. There are churches, probably not many, but with better coffee than we have. There are churches with a bigger kids ministry facility. There are churches in our city that have put 50 million rand into their kids facility alone. We can't necessarily compete on all fronts. 
But by God, our vision for you is not just that you have a fun time on a Sunday and a nice coffee. It's that Christ would be formed. It's that you would become more like Jesus. That your own life and family and and every part of your world will, will reflect that something's happened. And so forgive us for leaning into your life and speaking into it and, 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 and correcting at times or rebuking at times or encouraging at times because it's part of what we're, we've been commanded to do. To preach Jesus to every part of your life. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the Message Bible. He says, we preach Christ. We warn people. We warn them. Do not add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. Christ, no more, no less. What does it look like to be mature in Jesus? Christ, no more, no less. That's the message. It's Him we preach. So that by helping people hold fast to the person of Jesus and the hope of of the gospel, we may present every one of them mature in Christ. And that maturity comes as we hold fast to the head so that we can grow, the head being Jesus, the head of the church, so that we can grow with a growth that comes from God. So Epaphras comes to Paul and he says, the people, they have faith. They they love Jesus. They love God. But they're also facing these pressures. And Paul opens his letter by speaking about Jesus as the exalted Messiah. Speaking about him as the creator. About him as the one in whom all things are held together. And by whom this new family, this new creation, this new people of God have been created. the, The author and creator of life has now produced a new family of grace. And his power is present with them. He pens two prayers in those first few verses. Firstly, thanking God for the faith of these people. And he says that he knows they have faith because they clearly love God and love each other. And because because of the hope they have in heaven. And he moves on to pray that they would grow in their wisdom and their understanding about Jesus so that they may walk in a manner that is worthy of God, bearing fruit and living changed lives. Colossians 1, 3 to 7, he says, We always thank God the Father our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood what? The grace of God in truth. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So they had this hope that their lives were not just earthly lives, but connected to heaven and the resurrected Jesus because they heard the word of truth. What is the word of truth? He says it, the grace of God, the gospel of grace. There is no other gospel. And even if an angel comes out of heaven and preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. There's no other gospel. There's only one gospel. It's the gospel of grace. And when these people in Colossae heard the gospel of grace, that verse tells us that certain things happened. The first thing that happened is that they were convinced that they belonged to God. When you hear the gospel, you realize that you are accepted and loved and received and a part of God's family, not because you've earned it, but because of his grace, that you have a hope laid up in heaven, eternal life. The second thing, as we read there, is that it, they increased in their love for God and all people. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to India, wrote, if you haven't grown in love, you haven't grown at all. And I thought about that as I was lying in bed last night. What does success look like for me? And I realized it's not just being successful. It's not just building a great organization. It's not just, it's, you know, all these things that we make. It, success really looks like becoming like Jesus. When people can feel the love of God through my life, that's how I know I'm being successful according to the scriptures. If you haven't grown in love, you haven't grown at all. If God is love, we can't reveal him accurately to a loveless world unless we increase in love. And this love moves us, which brings me to point three. It changes the way we live. It changed the way they lived. That verse, Colossians 1.6 in another translation says, the same gospel that came to you is going out all over the world. And it is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. How do you know that the gospel's working? How do you know that you're preaching the gospel? Well, people either be mad at you or their lives will be completely changed. That's why they gotta get mad because it's such a force. They either need to shut it out completely and aggressively or be completely changed by it. It's threatening. to the self-righteous and inviting to the unrighteous. The source of biblical change that we see here is God's grace. How does a person change? By God's grace. Grace is the presence of Jesus. He is grace. And he became to us grace upon grace. And so when Jesus is present, his grace, his ability it means God is at work. This is a gift that God has given us, not something that we could have done for ourselves. And what I love is, is that it shows us that grace is for everyone. Because it says wherever this message is being preached in the world, it works. It's not a European thing. It's not a Middle Eastern thing. It's not an American thing. 
It's not an Asian thing. It's, it, it, it works everywhere in the world. Come to Africa, go to Asia, go to Antarctica. The gospel works. I can go to Mongolia and find some Eskimo living in the snow and tell them about Jesus who died on the cross for them and their lives will be changed. Deepest jungles, remotest islands. We've got our friends from Overland Missions who go to all of those places and they preach the gospel and people encounter the presence of Jesus and that entire village is transformed. Because wherever this gospel is preached, it bears fruit by changing lives. The gospel does what the gospel does. Grace works. Some people say, no, but you've got to balance grace with truth. What does that make grace? Does it make it untruth? People who say that don't understand what it is. You need to go back to the Bible, you need to do some more study and then come talk to us again. Because it's not a balancing act between grace and truth. It says it's grace in truth. It's a part of the truth. If you're just talking about people saying, okay, well, I can go out and I can, do how, I can live however I want because grace is there. As Martin Luther calls it, those disrespecters of God's goodness. It's just because they don't really understand what God's grace is. Anybody who says that has not encountered true grace. They've encountered something else which Paul calls a perversion of the gospel. But when you talk about grace, it's not grace versus truth. It's grace in truth. Since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. And as we grow in that grace, we learn to honor and please God in all that we do. Walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That happens because Jesus is present. He said it in the book of John when Jesus spoke to His disciples. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So it's only by abiding in Jesus. Then the power flows from knowing Jesus and transforms our lives. Not rules, not religion, not self-effort, but Jesus. We come then to Colossians 1.15. I'm almost done this morning. Which again, like we saw in Ephesians, Paul writes a Messiah poem that's all about the crucified and exalted Messiah. And there's two stanzas in this poem, Colossians 1:15 to 20. And these two stanzas are crammed with language from Genesis and Exodus and the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's, it's really showing us that, that this Messiah is the Messiah that we have been awaiting for, for all of these generations. The first stanza explores how Jesus is the true image of God, the full embodiment of God, the deity of God dwelling in him bodily, and how Jesus is the king and the author of all creation. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
And in him, all things hold together. He's the king of creation. He's the author of life. Then the second stanza in that Messiah poem tells us about how this author and king who created life is now bringing about a new creation. And he is the head of a new body of people, a new humanity, a new way to be human. And his own resurrection is a prototype for the resurrected lives that these people will lead. The same power, the same spirit that raised him will raise them also. And so he is the firstborn among many brethren. The first fruits, the first one raised. I don't know about you, but if you're an only child, do we have any only children here today? Anybody an only child? Normally, if you're an only child, your parents don't introduce you as their firstborn. They just say, this is our child, this is our only child. Jesus is not introduced as the only child, but as the firstborn. Because there's a whole community of people that are to be resurrected and become children of God. And that's you and I today. Verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, church, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, this is the mistake I made in my preaching and it's the mistake I made with my six-year-old. I wanted them to behave like they were righteous before they understood and believed that they were righteous. So right believing leads to right living. Do you know your identity in Christ today? Because if you don't, you'll struggle to spell the words of the kingdom. You need to know who you are. Paul says, by the death of Jesus, he has presented you holy and blameless and above re reproach. This is your new identity. You're not living in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the resurrection. So we don't shift from this hope. That's why we don't add to the message. It's Jesus, no more, no less. To be mature is to be basic. I want to read you what Martin Luther said, and I'll give more context to this next week. But this is what he wrote when he had that same revelation of his righteousness in Christ. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. 
There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives, by the, sorry, is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteous God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteous, righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. Thus, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Hereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated the word with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, in that place, in Paul, was for me truly the gate to paradise. He hated the word righteousness. But when he understood that that righteousness came through faith and that it was a gift with the same hatred that he felt towards it, it now became the sweetest gates of paradise. We enter in through the grace of the resurrected Christ. My prayer for you, church, is that you would realize what Jesus has done for you and that you would walk in it in confidence. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?